0: When we opened to the public in 2006, by the end of the year, we had 1,600 rider visits. Last year, we did almost 54,000. So in 16 seasons, we went from 1,600 in a time when you know, mountain biking was lift access, mountain biking was nothing, to today, right through 2021 season. We grew the business to 50, almost 54,000 visitors.
1: the owner and founder of Highland Bike Park in Northfield, New Hampshire. Mark decided to double down on lift access mountain biking when he opened Highland Bike Park 16 years ago. Mark goes into all the aspects of bike parks and how bike parks serve as an avenue to get new people into mountain biking. As you'll learn in this episode, Highland has grown into much more than a bike park. Take a listen for the insider knowledge that Mark shares on these topics. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full-on of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.edotrails.com.
0: Yeah. And and some, sometimes that can hurt you if you're not dedicated to, um, you know, when you first, if you're looking at a big mountain, a lot of the resort folks that don't really understand the mountain bike concept, they want to go to the top of their mountain and the the top of the mountain's 2000 vertical. That's a long way down for a beginner, beginner rider because 2000 vertical could be six miles of trail. And if you don't have, you know, pull offs and good spots for people to rest, it's hard on a beginner. First-time riders have a hard time riding six miles, unless you've been used to riding. You know, you're into cross-country, or, or you know, you've raced, or if you're brand new to the sport, yeah, you. It's hard to imagine, you know, having even little kids trying to ride six miles and their hands on the brakes. So the smaller mountains can really appeal to uh, the entry-level market, or or lower or or the lifts themselves, right? You. Typically, what you get when you go to a big resort is, um, if they don't under- quite understand the mountain bike concept yet, is they'll, they'll say, um, you know, we'll push for a, a lower lift. Say, can you open this lift over here? And that'll be your first phase of your bike park. Well, no, we can't do that because we already run this lift over here. And that lift is for, you know, everybody, for weddings and uh, just people that want to hike or hike down the mountain. So he goes, well, no, you really need to think about this. The mountain bike operation should be a separate operation. You know, there's, there's good potential in just the mountain bike operation. And to get more people into the sport, you should start on that lift over there. That's only, you know, maybe 500 or 600 vertical. And then put your eyes on the other uh, lift as, as things start to progress and you get more and more people into your, you know, into the sport or to your brand.
2: Well, should we kick this off with an official intro?
0: yeah let's do it
2: well here we are trail fact i have mark hayes mark hayes is the owner founder of highland bike park in northfield new hampshire and highland from everything i can tell i've never i've not had the great fortune to go to highland but from all the stuff i've done as far as research on this highland is like basically the premier bike park in the united states and it's been going now for what 16 years
0: yeah we just finished our 16th season
2: yeah well let's talk about how uh how you get into mountain biking and maybe you wanted to lead into starting this crazy thing known as a bike park that long ago.
0: So I started, I started mountain biking. I'd like to say in the early nineties, I borrowed my sister's giant. It was a fully rigid giant. And I went out on some just access road trails, horseback riding trails, that kind of thing. And Started to get a little bit hooked, I guess. And then later on, maybe a couple of years later, maybe this is mid-90s, I rode with a a group of friends for the first time that were just way more into it. And the trails they were taking me on were you know single track, Rocky, Rudy. And that's when that's when I really got hooked. I'm like, man, this is a really cool sport. So I was as I was getting hooked. The passion for biking. I was. I was. Um, I had started a high tech business back in the late '80s, and that grew. So long story short, my sister worked for me. I've hired my sister about a year in. My father, who had helped uh, helped me get into the fiber optic business, the high tech business, he had his own business, and he joined forces with my sister and I about four years in, and then we took on this other partner a non-related partner. And we built the company over 12 years, and then we sold it to a big giant contract manufacturer. Those are the guys that make cell phones and circuit boards. And you know they, they're the ones when you want to scale, scale a, a project, like you want to build a bunch of cell phones, you could use a contract manufacturer. So this contract manufacturer came to us and bought us out. They wanted our technology in the fiber optic space. So we each ended up with uh, a big pile of money and we did our own thing. And my thing was, I found this old beat up, run down ski area called Highlands mountain ski area, and I bought it.
2: Talk about what led you to, to even finding Highland and kind of what, what it's like, what the demographic is like, or the, the region is like, as far as population and what the hill maybe was when you took it, took it over before it actually became a bike park?
0: Yeah, so I had looked at a bunch of different properties. You know, when I sold the business, let me back up a second. Before I sold the business, business, I went to Whistler. And I had ridden East Coast Mountains, you know, your classic ski resort, mountain bike, lift access mountains. But the trails weren't engineered. They were, you know, Rocky Rudy's type trails, but nothing, nothing with with that, uh, quote, quote, flow, right? With the burns and the jumps. So when I rode Whistler, I was like, wow, this is amazing what they're doing here. And that was back in the late 90s. And so I sold my company in 2000. So with the sale of the company, with the passion for mountain biking, and now visiting Whistler, I was like, man, there needs to be something like this on the East Coast. And I started to look for property. So I had, you know, sold the company, I took a year off just, Went all around New England trying to find the right property. And in order, you know, I I was looking at properties without any infrastructure, just raw land thinking, oh, I'll just buy a chairlift and put a chairlift in and I'll build a lodge and I'll do all this. But the numbers, the money started to add up real quick and it didn't really make sense to me. And some of the locations were tough to get to. So finally, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a real estate attorney and he said, He knew what I was trying to do. He said, you should buy Highlands Mountain Ski Area up in Northfield. And I live down in Massachusetts, just over the border from New Hampshire. And so Northfield is centrally located in New Hampshire. It's in the Lakes region, we call it. So it's about an hour and a half north of Boston. Very easily accessible to people traveling north. The main highway is 93, and we're about five minutes off the highway with this mountain. So when I found the mountain, I said, well, the location's perfect as far as getting people from Boston, these major, you know, these populated areas in Massachusetts and Southern New Hampshire. And so I walked the property with some friends and just said, this is, a, this is awesome. It has a chairlift. It has a lodge. It has an office space. But they were in really rough shape. I mean, really run down. The lift was, hadn't run for about 12 years. And, but the price was right. I bought it for $350,000. So I got 220 acres for $350,000 with a chairlift and the, you know, the shell of a building or two buildings. So it was, that was it. I mean, I said, man, this is it. This is the, this is the Goldilocks property. So
2: what's the vertical at Highland? Like what kind of elevation are you working with? And what's the surrounding property have?
0: We have uh, the chairlift services, 580 vertical. There's another slight little peak off of what we call the summit now that we could gain access to someday, and that it only goes up maybe another 50 or 60 feet vertical. So I think it's been written in the past. There's old brochures on the Highland ski area. They said it was 700 vertical, but that was stretching it. So let's go with 580. 580 is the number. (laughs) At least it's the number on the uh, on the plan. You know, when you look at the topo lines.
2: Yeah, I think that gets stretched in a lot of places, and when it comes to especially the older ski areas. And you, I don't know if you looked at any other ones, but I'm sure there's probably a handful of older resorts up in that neck of the woods between New Hampshire and Vermont that was kind of a hotbed for the small little ski resorts back in the '70s, eh? Yeah,
0: they, there's there's an, a website you can go to. It's called New England Lost Ski Area Projects website, and there's a whole bunch of them on there, Highland, Highlands, mountain ski areas on there. And I think somebody since changed it, said now it's a mountain bike park. But I looked at another mountain that was a defunct old rundown mountain out in Temple, New Hampshire, which is west of Boston and further south from where I'm at here, but harder to get to because there was no main highway going to it. And they wanted 1.8 million for that mountain and it was you know roughly the same vertical had another i think it had another chairlift but they were it was in rough shape like man that's uh that's a little bit too steep for what i'm trying to do because i you know buying the mountains one thing putting capital into the mountain to get it to a point where it's ready to be open to the public that's a whole another you know that's that's a a lot more than what it costs to buy the mountain so the capital that I had to put into it, you know, far exceeded what the initial cost was. Yeah, so I couldn't imagine buying something at one start. My starting point being one point eight million, that'd be a rough, a, a rough, rough for me for where where I was at for what I you know took in when I sold the company, the high tech company.
2: Yeah, and you got into this at a time where it was kind of a transition period for mountain biking. I was, I got, I personally got into mountain biking in the late, really late '80s, early '90s as a as a middle school kid. Seemed like anything that was lift access in that era was lift access for like fire roads and stuff. Like if you remember the old mammoth kamikaze downhill, you know, that Norway used to do. It was just a huge, super long fire road that people went as fast as they possibly could on, which is a whole different type of mountain biking. And it seemed like some people thought that because they had a chairlift, they could throw bikes on it and send people down fire roads and stuff. And, and it seemed like you came in at a time when there's it was kind of a low point within mountain biking but at the same time right on the leading edge of when mountain biking and trail construction really started becoming a thing specific for mountain biking how do you did you see that from your whistler experience or is that something that um you just weren't sure how that was going to go and hoping it would pan
0: out no uh yeah so i did so whistler inspired me because because of the trails the engineered trails and the trails i was riding at that time because I had been riding for a while and I, I rode the East coast Mountains, So I, I knew how to ride a bike. I wasn't a brand new rider. So I was riding some, you know, some of their jump line trails and just blown away by how, how well they flowed and, and the, the construction of the jumps and the drop offs, you know, you got to think back then in the nineties, they're coming off of the sort of the North shore build, right. where, where, where people were building in the woods all kinds of elevated ladder systems and that that was pretty big back then. So there was a combination of a lot of the ladders wooden features at Whistler plus this these machine built engineered trails. There is an old video of me somewhere online and it was when I first opened the park in 2006 opened it to the public and I was speaking to you know in order to grow the sport we absolutely have to get beyond the current riders that, you know, the racers, the, the so-called free ride mountain bikers, the ones that were building the features in the woods and hucking themselves off of big drops. And, and, and in order to be sustainable in the business, we got to get more people into the sport. So right from the beginning, my team and I knew it was vital, absolutely vital to have entry-level trails. But understanding what an entry level trail was back in 2006 is a lot different, even for us today, than uh, you know, in 20 now 2022. Understanding what a real entry level trail is, and if you're trying to get the masses hooked, what does that look like? And so the trail that we had as our entry level trail back in 2006 is now, oh man, it's almost probably almost a black black diamond trail although it's it's a rough it's a it's a rough blue square and we call it a blue square trail but there's sections you know it's a it's a r- little bit rougher blue square trail than you know more the entry level blue square square trails but that's just to go goes to show you you know just uh, even us back then we had really no idea like what is a real beginner trail yeah, we uh we finally figured it out or at least we think we we have figured it out
2: yeah so when did you start building what would be considered green circle trails as of today, you by today's standards. Like how long did it take you from 2006 to kind of, because tr- back in 2006, foot trails weren't really a thing yet. And that's kind of what a lot of people look at as their kind of their green standard, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, so uh, we have a trail called freedom trail and the freedom trail is that sort of sidewalk through the woods. It's not, it's not the rail trail. But it is basically a rail trail on an elevation so not just you know it's not about just building a beginner trail it's also the lesson component with it so if you have a brand new rider you know the goal with the brand with any the goal with any business obviously is you you want to keep bringing business to your business and in our case our business is is lots of people and there are lots and lots and lots of people that want to ride their bicycle down a mountain but they need you know there's only a small percentage of people that could come to your mountain and ride your advanced trails or even your blue square trails there's a much 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 bigger market and potential when you introduce it to that entry level so to do that any resort and this is what we tell our resort partners is you you need to you need to have a a lesson component that goes with that trail. And that's speaks basically to our mission. Our our short version, our mission is we build trails and we teach people how to ride them and we're 100% biking related. So to get people into the sport, you have to have that trail and you have to have that lesson to get the masses hooked. And once, once you get them, you know, if they're leaving your parking lot and they had a, an, an unbelievable experience. They're coming back and they're going to come back a few more times and probably many times and eventually be your season pass holder and pave the way for the next group of people that are coming in because they'll tell more people and so on. So you got to have you got to make sure everybody's having a good experience right from the beginning.
2: Well, let's dig into your the overview of Highland and what it what it is and and how you serve people, because you have not just a bike park, you have a restaurant, you have a bike shop you have camps you have the whole spectrum of your brand and what you do there let's let's kind of get that overview so people can know what to expect that maybe not aren't familiar with highland or even being in the northeast part of the country
0: well so uh, i'll speak i'll speak to the so the mission is we build trails we teach people how to ride them we're 100% biking and we look at the business and you might think well how do you how do you do that and especially if you're you're in New England and it must snow and you're not riding in the wintertime. And how do you sustain yourself? So with our mission, we look at it. We look at the, the three different platforms. We call them platforms. And call Platform A is, is Highland Mountain Bike Park. That's the platform that you come in, you buy tickets, you buy a ticket, you rent a bike, you eat food, you drink a beer, you get your bike worked on, take lessons. That's all, you know, classic ski area type model right just gets lots of people through the door and offer you know all of those little business units underneath that platform so that that's you know if you're coming coming to highland for the first time whether you've ridden a bike or not that's what you would expect you'd expect a a ski resort sort of feel with all these amenities Um, but what happens you know if it if it rains every weekend you know the weekends are our busiest times, Saturdays and Sundays. So if we have four consecutive weekends that are rainy, instead of 500 people being at the mountain, there might be only 100 people. So how do you you live through that? So there's another platform called Platform B. That's our camps platform. And for that, we have overnight camps. We have a partnership with a school just about five minutes from us. It's a college prep school and they have dorms. So we house our our kids we have a kid version of the camps and we have an adult version of the camp so when we house our kids at the tilton school that's our partner we bus them back and forth to the park so if it's raining out kids are riding right so if we have 500 kids in camp it doesn't matter those kids already you know they already dedicated that you know they're already paid to come to camp and and that business unit works whether it's raining or not we're riding in the rain. And then the third platform called platform C is our trail building platform. And so we're not only building trails at Highland, but we we also have another division called Highland trails that builds trails outside of Highland. And we target ski resorts that want trails. We target uh, municipalities that may want to pump track or a trail system. We, we target private property, private owners. And so if it's a rainy bunch of weekends, well, we have our trail build, building business to fall back on, and or we have our camps business to fall back on. So to, just to speak to that real quick, last year, I should say actually in 2020 when COVID hit, and uh, you might want to wormhole on this later, but I, I'll just speak real quick. We, you know, first of all, in the beginning of the season, which was a- April, I thought that we were doomed. I was like, this is it, We're we're shut down. I don't know how we can recover if we don't have any customers. Well, the exact opposite happened with the Highland Mountain Bike Park platform, platform A. So many people showed up. You know, we, we, we even with that, with the Canadian border, which represents our number four customer, the Canadian border was closed. We were still crazy busy, but we had to give all our money back to our camp families. So we couldn't run camp in 2020 because of the COVID restrictions. And we lost about three quarters of our trail building business because of the uncertainty. The resorts weren't sure about what was going on. So they held on to their capital, probably a wise move at some level. And so we only got about a quarter of our trail building business. So because we were so busy in that first platform, we were able to, you know, the other two platforms were were saved by the amount of you know, income we made from from the Highland Mountain Bike Park. So, you know, next year we could have a rainy season, but our camp business is through the roof right now. There's so many kids that are signed up for camp. Like we're our numbers are just crazy. And we're we actually have to cap it just because of the because of where we're at right now with how many kids we can house and just our infrastructure for hosting a, a camp where everybody can have a good time. So we already know that business is is already booked. So that's a good feeling. And if we have a halfway decent year with our Highland tri- Highland Mountain Bike Park, then that's two two awesome, you know, years for two platforms and then as of right now, you know, unless something crazy happens, we have uh trail work too. So, all we need is good weather and we should be doing pretty good with those three platforms.
2: Yeah, so going back to 2020 when your trail building was down, did that mean in your and your bike park use was up? Did you transition some of your trail builders that would maybe travel somewhere else into working at the bike park to keep that thing in the shape that it probably needs to be in for the customers seeing higher
0: numbers? Yeah. So we just basically, instead of having, you know, a few, three or four of our guys out on the road working for Highland Trails, they just, yeah, they just came back to the mountain and the mountain got a little bit more love than maybe we could handle on a busy trail building year. But the key to this whole thing and and what I've, what I'm doing now is it's so hard to find a, a quality trail builder. There's so much, there's so much work out there right now that we've spent the last few years building our team. So we have a really, really good trail crew team. So even if we do land jobs outside of here, we still have a team that's back at, Highland Mount, we call it corporate trails versus Highland Trails. When I look at my finance, my financial modeling, my management sheets. The corporate trail has its own sort of profit and loss that we so we keep track of that. And for instance, last summer, I had, depending on the job, always at least three people on the road. At well, we had a big project with Loon. Loon's a ski resort just north of us. And we built uh year number three last year was our yeah our third year. So we had three three of our team members there. And then there was at any time there could have been five to eight back at Highland. So we look at our trail builder team as you know apprentice, journeyman, master as far as the levels, skill level. So we had some journeymen, trail builders, you know, like rakers and you know fine tuners cleaning up, maintaining trail. And then machine operators, chainsaw operators, skid steer operators would be more like a journeyman trail builder. And then the master builder would be somebody that could lay out a trail and design design any, basically any trail you want. So it's a real good, it's a balance. And my, what I'm trying to do now is just build the team. Even if the profits aren't there, you know, we'll be a little bit heavy on the payroll. It's about building. Building a team and, and getting a team big enough where we don't have to worry about, you know, I, always, I always tell my team if somebody gets hit by a bus, right, including myself, I get hit by the bus, what happens What happens to the operation? You should always have that next person in command ready to go. Right? So that's, that's the struggle is just finding good, talented people, which we've been so lucky over the years to find good, talented people that are, are as passionate or probably more passionate than me about trails and building trails. And you know, just keeping that momentum going.
2: Is there crossover or do you use Highland Bike Park as kind of your, uh, your training facility or these people that go out on the roads to build in other places like at Lunar, maybe another facility that you would be hired to work at?
0: Yeah, so the other thing we always say is Highland Mountain Bike Park is our R&D facility and this is where we do actually do exactly what you're saying i mean we're building trails we're innovating we're you know looking at what other people are doing our people are figuring stuff out so it's just it's growing it's a good place to learn how to build trails and that yeah that's exactly what we do we we keep you know sort of the the team learns here first and then And then once we have it dialed in, we can take those sort of those journeymen, upper level journeymen, trail builders out on the road. Take everything we've learned how to do here at Highland Mountain Bike Park and offer, you know, quality trail building service outside of here.
2: Let's stay on the topic of trails. How have you seen the evolution of trails from when you started and opened to the public in 2006 to today? And how is your, how have your builders kind of. Stayed on the forefront, or maybe even were the forefront of the of changing the trail building model and what people expect and what people now see on the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like when you're when you're done riding a trail, if you don't know anything about trail building and you're done riding a trail and you're just like, what? What just happened? Why was that so? Why was that so cool? Right? It's because everything, you know, everything's engineered and when I say it's engineered, it's not like, you know, our, our teams out there, they, the, the best, the best builders are also the best. If you're a really good rider and you're really good trail builder, that's the best, right? That's the best you can be. So we have all our trail crew is are really good riders and learning how to be a good trail builder. takes time. And so we made a lot of mistakes along the way. You know, we thought were cool, fun, flowy trails. If we could go back to 2006, we'd be like, "Oh my God, this, this place sucks," <laughs> you know. So it's just evolu- It's just time, you know, t- just time to tweak things and learn. And yeah, maybe we, maybe our guys rode someone else's trail and said, "Wow, that's a really cool way that they did that berm or that jump." You know, there's a lot of feel to it. And if you're a good rider and you're a good trail builder, and, and then you ride that trail. You, and you, that's when you go, wow, wow what just happened? That's, that's amazing. So part of that is, is getting to the point, like I said earlier, you know, building a trail that is designed, first of all, for the masses and then having something for when the masses start to get hooked for them to go to that next level. But you could always just look at it like, okay, here's our beginner trail. Now what's the next logical trail for that person that just conquered that trail to go to? And making the gap smaller and smaller between the level of difficulty of trails just takes more time. It takes a long time to build a quality trail. Even on a mountain that's 600 vertical or 580 vertical, it takes a long time. So that's one thing we have on our side is time. We've had a lot of time, many thousands and thousands, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of hours of work into building the trails here, but it's, it's a lot. And, and we're getting closer and closer to the point where I was like, okay, you're a beginner, you just finished that trail. Now go to this one and then go to this one. And the closer we can make those links, the more progressive we make the whole mountain. And, and so that's over time, that's what we've, you know, we've had the ability to be able to do that, but we've also learned a lot. You know, from the first generation of trails. so Brian Finestone, he's, uh, he's he was out of Whistler. I think he still I think he went back to Whistler. He, he left Whistler for a while. He might actually be back there now. he um, He talks about the four the four main things you have to think about when you're building trail. and uh, it's amplitude, it's speed, it's frequency. so it's uh, a, it's A s s f amplitude speed speed frequency and um so amplitude let me start with amplitude amplitude is how you know how how big do you make the jump right how big is that thing and if you're on a beginner trail you better know the amplitudes you know which are going to be really small small anything like little rollers and then uh speed how fast do you you know what how do you judge the speed. So if you're building a jump, you don't want people overshooting jumps or undershooting jumps. Oh, sightline. That's what I couldn't think of. My little brain had to think of sightline. Sightline is you come around a corner and there's a drop ahead of you. You better give somebody a lot of time to figure out whether they can do that drop or not. So you have beelines, right? So you can go around the drop. But if you come around a drop or come around a corner and there's a drop right, right in your face and you don't have enough time, you don't have enough sightline, you know, sightline isn't proper. You could, you could get really hurt. You can hurt people. So that was, uh, what I miss amplitude, speed, sight line and frequency. So the frequency is just, you know, you have a bunch of j- jumps, you know, and you're hitting jump after jump, after jump, if they're close together and you're a beginner or an intermediate, like a beginner, intermediate rider, you don't have time when you, when you land that jump to get yourself together. And then hit that next jump, right so you want to give them a little bit more distance between say jumps so on a on an advanced trail, it doesn't matter because the you know people are so dialed they just hit a jump and hit another one hit another one it's it's pretty easy so that's something I took away from Brian years ago at one of the mountain bike conferences that I was participating in, and thought that was really really insightful. Pass f he would say pass f. <laughs> And he'd say it with a straight face and I'm like, Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> you spoke
2: to something that I like to bring up in a lot of my shows. Um, some, some partially for education, partially for humor, which is uh, famous failures and they don't necessarily need to be famous in terms of like, Oh, everybody heard about this, but maybe famous in your mind or things that a thing that maybe like really sticks out as a, as a good learning experience that you had while building this. And I mean, the whole, the whole spectrum of what you've built not just the bike park and we know that the road to success is full of a lot of different experiments or failures or whatever you want to label them is there anything that sticks out in your brain that you'd like to tell the listeners about maybe that you've learned from doing something wrong and then figured out
0: how to do it right yeah man that yeah there's been plenty of failures <laughs> the struggles the struggles struggles good though right It. it it creates who you are. You know, if everything came easy, if life was easy, it would be. It's like, what's the point? But yeah, my one of my, I think one of my biggest failures is. So we we decided to build an indoor center back in two thousand nine, and this is a financial failure. I'll give you one of those. I've had a few of those, but this is <laughs> this is a dummy dummy move. So we I called up the Whistler guys and asked them. Who, what building they had, their air dome. And they told me they used this company called Coverall. So I called up Coverall and the Coverall rep came in and he sold me. He said, in order to secure this building, you got to put $54,000 down. I'm like, all right, cool. I gave him $54,000 and he drove out of my parking lot. As he was driving out of my parking lot, this guy called me up. His name is Sean Calhoun. He owns a competing co- company to Coverall. And Sean said, Mark, I'm Sean Calhoun. I, I ride mountain bikes. I, I heard you were looking for an indoor building. I'm like, Sean, I just gave the a down payment to the Coverall rep. He just left the parking lot. He's like, oh, damn. Oh, if anything falls through, just let me know. Three weeks later, Sean called me up and said, Mark, did you hear that cover all went out of business? I'm like, what? I go, are you kidding me? So I called the rep and the rep's like, no, we didn't, no, what are you talking about? Well, sure enough, they, were, they went out of business yeah, because they had an in- incident where the Dallas Cowboy training facility got uh, torn down by a, by a, it was a tornado or a supercell of some sort and it injured a couple people. And so there was a big lawsuit But when they, you know, understandable, a tornado can rip down any building, but when they did their investigation, they found out that the engineering that they had done on the, on the building, they had cut corners and yeah, it, uh, it came down and there was just a huge lawsuit. So they closed the doors and I lost $54,000. It was gone just like that. And I called Sean back up. Luckily, Sean said look mark we have so much business now because of all the coverall contracts and all the people that are screaming for these buildings and i had already told the world basically our team had told the world that we're going to have an indoor building for the start of the 2020 2010 season and our first year of our indoor camps too, our air academy indoor camps or sorry um, on-site camps and i was like jesus i got to do something so sean sean actually pulled through and got us a building and but to make matters worse, I hired an attorney and I got about $2,000 into the attorney to try to go chase, you know, some money. He goes, Mark, I, it might cost you 20, 30, $40,000 to get your money out of Canada because Coverall is a Canadian business, a Canadian company because I don't, I don't see anything you can do here. You just chalk it up as a loss. So I did. And, and so now it's crazy because Dave Kelly, who, you know, he's one of the founders of the Whistler Bike Bar. He's uh, one of the chief guys at, at Gravity Logic. He sent me a text the other day and he said, do you see the Whistler air dome? It, it collapsed. You know, what do you, what do you have for, for a building? And so sure enough, he showed me pictures of the dome and it was collapsed, the steel too, not just the roof, not the fabric roof because the buildings we have are steel and fabric. And the whole thing collapsed under the weight of the snow load and it bent and it twisted and I'm like, wow so happy i didn't go with the with that building and sean you know the the calhoun building ended up being it's just a different design so i guess that was that was a mistake you know going with Coverall. but maybe there was some light at the end of the tunnel or it was a silver lining to to me not 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 going with the coverall building
2: yeah to not have a building collapse under snow load you're on the east coast you get storms you might not be on the ocean but you're not
1: far
0: yeah, exactly. But when you design these things, you, you, the trusses have a certain spacing depending on snow loads. So, you know, we did that and we had all the calculations in the engineering from the from the you know Calhoun engineers. But, you know, I don't know. Well, maybe it would, would have been off with the coverall. Maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know. But I'd be nervous right now. I would be if it was a coverall building. But luckily, we don't have that.
2: Yeah, what that reminds me of in my real full-time life, by not doing podcast trail life. I work for Wisconsin DOT and, and I formerly worked within the maintenance section of Wisconsin DOT. And what you're describing as a building reminds me of something that we would get built for a salt storage structure, you know, a huge steel framed fabric roof that has a ton of square feet and is tall.
0: That's it. That's exactly what they are. They, yeah, they, they have applications in, Yeah, the DOT here has them. You know, I see them off. They're usually positioned somewhere off the exits. Farming, a lot of farmers have them. You know, they're big in Canada because there's a lot of farm space in Canada, farmlands in Canada. Yeah, they're nice. They're great for indoor bike parks.
2: Yeah, well, part of this bike park series is kind of exposing to the public what the difference is are between a privately run bike park and say your public trail system. And it sounds like you've had, or you have experience in both angles, because obviously you run the bike park, which is a private entity, pay-to-play type of entity. And then on your trail building side, you may be building in that public avenue or that public arena. Let's talk about what the private bike park offers that the public might not offer or want to offer because they're under a different model.
0: Yeah, so the private, you know, private pay-to-play typically. You pay to come in and, and play. So let's go back to the platform, Highland Mountain Bike Park. You come in and you buy a ticket. You can rent a bike. You can take a lesson. There's patrol on the mountain. So if you get hurt, you know that there's patrol that's there to save you. Not to say that public places may or may not have that, but in most cases, you know, if you're a mountain bike resort, you have all of the, the amenities that you might not have in the public. So those are the those are the big ones. You know, you just have a place to you have shelter, you have a lodge to go into. You may not necessarily have that, you know, at a at a public facility. But usually public facilities are free, free to the public. And there's miles and miles and miles of really awesome trails depending on you know who's building them. There's obviously really talented builders out there and there's really awesome public networks and trails, but they don't have, yeah, they just don't have the infrastructure that you would expect to see at a, at a, at a pay to play resort. Like now on that, on the other side, yeah, I do have experience on the public side. I am, uh, the president of a, a nonprofit called the Foothills foundation. And the mission there is to promote outdoor recreation and economic expansion through community partnerships. So our ultimate goal, in our in our neck of the woods here is in the central new hampshire neck of the woods is to build miles and miles of really awesome fun flowy trails that people of all levels can ride and so our our first phase our our, what we're trying to do is connect highland to the town of franklin which is the next frank town over franklin is building a whitewater park and so by connecting Highland, which is a driver, you know, outdoor economic driver in this area to Franklin, which is the other out, outdoor economic driver with a trail system being, you know, an hour and a half outside of Boston and, you know, half an hour out of major, major population centers in New Hampshire. We think uh, we're really on to something, you know, this, the, the highway splits the two of us right in half, you know, Northfield's on the east side and Franklin's on the west side. You go right through, heading up north to some of the other locations, some of the other tourist destinations, outdoor destinations. So the Foothills Foundation is, you know, it's myself and some of my team members and other team members outside of Highland helping to put all of the things in place to make a successful public trail network happen. You know, getting, you know, we're looking at an intern right now, potential intern to help do some of the just some of the, the tasks that people that have full-time jobs can't do, you know, cause we, I typically meet once a month, right. On a nonprofit. I wish I could be working on that nonprofit every day. I just can't at this point in my life, you know, happening having these other companies that I'm running, but we're finding more and more people and, and that want to want to participate. And so, you know, that public network, could have its challenges unless it's really there's a good strategy and a good plan in place. So we actually ended up winning some grant money and we hired a company called the SE Group, the resort planners. They help a lot of the resorts around New England and and actually worldwide. They've been in business for 60 years. They helped uh, the Kingdom Trails. The Kingdom Trails, I don't know if you've heard of the Kingdom Trails up in Vermont. They're a very popular destination for bicycle tourism. Some amazing trails. I think they have over a hundred miles of trails really cool place to go if you're a mountain biker. But they did run into some trouble, you know, with some of the neighbors, neighboring lands. You know, they have somewhat of a tenuous situation where they have a bunch of people letting, you know, letting the King Trails folks build trails on their land. But in, in a perfect world, everybody's really cool, right? They, they realize this is an amazing thing that these guys built up here. But sometimes you get, I call them the one percenters. You know, you have some people that, don't like to play by the rules, or they you know they can piss off a neighbor or whatever it is they're doing and or just traffic, right? Traffic flow, flows through the town. And so you add all of these negatives and with this massive positive and it can disrupt you know some really cool stuff that's happening. So anyway, the SE group helped those guys work through some of their problems and so we hired them to you know help us as well so we can mitigate any potential future problems. So having a good plan, right, for a public trail network and having enough of the local support, whether it's businesses or, you know, your select board members or your mayor, whoever it is, on your side. And you need just, you just need good leadership and passionate people. And, you know, that's, that's the public world on this side. You still need good leadership, like on the private sector, you know, the mountain bike park. At a resort, you still need good leadership.
2: How about the maintenance side of things?
0: Yeah, that's the other thing. You, know, what's the, you build this awesome network of trails, it's not going to fix itself. So you have to have a real strategy to fix it. And if you don't, unless you have a lot of grant money, you know, it gets back to the capital. I said earlier on, I think in our pre-discussions, capital is key. If you don't have the capital, how can you expect to you know, maintain anything, really? you know with the with the public trail network if you if you have a lot of volunteer perfect world, you have all these volunteers that want to volunteer hours and hours of their time to maintain trails. you do have some of that public networks, but you still need you still need capital. you still need to pay for things, whether it's an excavator rental or you know leaf blowers or fuel for the you know still fixed cost and maintaining a quality public trail system. It's like a you know Having a bike park as well as, but with a bike park you have an income stream and people paying to come use your new facility. So Yeah, the big big differences are just in you know the infrastructure and.
2: Yeah, that's you know, and it's we found and this has came up as a reoccurring topic more recently on this podcast is you know everybody wants to see a bike park style trail in their public system, but what a lot of times they don't realize is a bike park style trail might require more maintenance. And and I've said it almost every episode, volunteers are great. I've been a volunteer for for well over a decade, going on two decades of trail, trail building and trail work and trail maintenance. But volunteers, like you just said, like yourself, they have full-time jobs. They don't work during the day on volunteering. They work during the day for their other stuff. And, you know, and finding that balance, because I do believe there is a place for some bike park style stuff in public areas. But just having enough to scratch that itch to then get people to transition to a place like Highland or whatever their regional bike park would be, you know, to kind of get
0: that going is also um, pretty vital. Yeah. And that's, you know, a quality built trail will be more sustainable as well. It does need maintenance, but if you have a trail and you don't, you don't really understand the water management that needs to happen, or uh, maybe you're using the wrong materials it's not built right for whatever reason, you know, you can certainly be looking at a lot of maintenance headaches down the road, but if you build it right from the beginning, then, you know, the trail is certainly a lot more sustainable, but the more traffic you have on trails, I mean, it's inevitable. You're going to have breaking bumps and you're going to have degradation of your trail. So you have to, you have to maintain it, but what's the upside of a good, you know, machine built flowy, Trail network through your through your towns is it brings good people into the town it brings outdoor minded you know I I think my outdoor people are good wholesome people they're usually driven they're the potential people that are going to be your next aCE employee or the next entrepreneur and good people you know if you have good trail a good trail network you're going to drive those people to your to your area and Support the economy of your area before you know it, I don't know, maybe you don't have a drug problem anymore in your neck of the woods, or if there is somebody that's about to fall off the line from good to bad, maybe you know something like Good trail network gives them purpose, you know they become part of the team and passionate about it, and their drug of choice now is riding a bike and you know out there working on trails so it's a really good thing for a community to have well-built trails. It just drives people into to the town. And as more people come in, you end up with a better trail network because you have more funds, you have more people pitching in to help. It's, it's a big win.
2: Yeah. And there you just hit on the whole quality of life aspect, which is something we like to hit on also with this show is, is really, you know, it's the tourism part is really good. And obviously you're in the tourism and wor- tourism world, but, you know, getting those quality, you know, getting or, or creating you know, an avenue for quality people, it does help a lot. And it does, you know, I know when we built our gra- more gravity oriented trails here in Lacrosse back in 2018 and 19, there wasn't any other trails that were built that brought that level of excitement and brought that many people to the table and got that many people on bikes too.
0: Mm. That's a really, it's, it's awesome when you when you visit a, a a well-designed and supported trail network, that is that's really cool. I get jealous. I d- I drove through Sedona about two months ago. I went up to Rampage, Rebel Rampage, because our team is involved in helping build the infrastructure that's part of that massive event. And my daughter, she goes to school in Tucson, the University of Arizona, and we I rented an RV and I drove drove up to. Virgin, Utah, check out the Red Bull event. So I took my two daughters on a road trip and we went through Sedona and I'm like, man, this place is this is just amazing. Like the infrastructure. I didn't get a chance to ride the trails, but it just had such a cool vibe from an outsider's perspective that never has been to Sedona. It was really cool to see just the just that whole area and the the biking. Biking on like every other car, Mountain bikes.
2: I was going to say, you just teed up my next question, the one that I ask everybody, that is communities. Before we go into that, I want to sidetrack into just north of Sedona is a community that I've never ridden, but I think is really underrated, and that's Flagstaff. There's a huge network around Flagstaff, but, it's, but Sedona, I mean, Sedona gets a lot of attention and, and rightfully so. I've, I was fortunate to be able to take a trip to Sedona back last February, and it was it was an amazing trip in multiple ways, and it put me on a track that I needed to be in. So, yeah. Back to communities. One of the things, you know, this, this, this whole podcast was really built around trails and communities, and that's why we call it the, the trail effect is really the effect that trails have on communities. And outside of your community, and I'm going to say outside of Whistler because we know, we know what effect Whistler has had on you by now. What are some communities there? What is a community that has really stuck out to you as maybe one that you've traveled to that you thought, you know, I want to travel back there or it just left a good lasting impression and maybe something that you would bring back to your own, own community in terms of what they offer. And not just, and we don't have to talk even in terms of trails, but like the whole spectrum. Like, what are you, what are the ingredients that you feel make a great trail community? Oh, wow. And Highland Bike Park is its own trail community to be frank.
0: Yeah, there's, um, well, yeah, if I can jump if I can just jump into that real quick. So when we opened to the public in 2006, by the end of the year, we had 1,600 rider visits. Last year, we did almost 54,000. So in 16 seasons, we went from 1,600 in a time when you know, mountain biking was lift access, mountain biking was nothing to today, right through 2021 season. We grew the business to fifty almost 54,000 visitors. So you can imagine the impact that has on all of the, the communities, from a financial standpoint, you know, people filling up their cars, they're going to convenience stores, they're staying at the bed and breakfasts, they're eating at the restaurants. You know, just one business like this can can change sort of the whole vibe of a community. Change it from you know, sort of a depressed. You know, it used to be a mill town, mill town community, and those they don't work anymore. because They don't need them, right? So now everybody's looking towards tourism. The people that don't have maybe an industrial base or high tech or something they're looking at what can we do to enhance our communities and tourism seems to be, you know, the next thing everybody's talking about it or mountain biking certainly is on the, on that list. The community that I've, I've been to, my sister lives in, in Carbondale, just outside of Aspen. I remember visiting there in um, it was probably 2000, early 2000 and Carbondale was just I don't remember it being that much, you know, it's kind of a sleepy little town, a couple of little, maybe restaurants or something. But when I went back a couple of years ago, I was like, wow, this place is just really cool. You know, it doesn't, it's not Aspen. It's like, we're all the people that work at the mountain. They can't afford to live in Aspen. They, they live in Carbondale or places like Carbondale. And it's so cool. You know, it's just, you walk downtown, it's got that sort of old West feel, but a modern flavor bars and restaurants and little food places. It's just not obnoxious. It's not too big. It's just again from an outside, outsider's perspective. who didn't spend a lot of time there. Just it's just really cool little community. Bike shops, ski shops, whole food type markets. We can get good good foods. It's a really, really well well laid out. Cool vibe. Bike bike trails everywhere. Road biking is big out there because of the uh at least this is what my my sister's boyfriend was telling me because he worked at a bike shop, he said there's a ton of road bikers because the the roads are so amazing and they're not there's not a lot of traffic. He said that the mountain bike trails are getting ridiculously crowded because everybody was just flocking to them. I guess that would be a community that I hope our community, town of Northfield and Tilton, Franklin, I see that the New England version of that happening as we, you know, really start to get some momentum with the foothills foundation and mill city park who's still in the whitewater park you know once we all really you know once the momentum starts going i can see like the carbondale feel with the new england new england style of carbondale colorado happening in in uh, the central new hampshire paradise
2: yeah the north the northeastern twist on that the north yeah that's it (laughs) well is there anything else that we want to talk about maybe Going, to, you do consulting also, correct?
0: In the trail building, yeah, the trail building consulting.
2: Yeah, is that? Do you have a a planning arm as well?
0: That you mean like a an engineering firm, or are you...
2: well, not. I don't know of an engineering firm in the trail building world. I guess the bit the best example that I could that I can think of is like Imba Trail Solutions. They do, you know, they obviously have their building side, but then they also have a pretty strong planning side. And that's something, the planning is something that I've been hitting on quite a bit too, that it's an accelerator for, especially for public access, you know, because you can get those donations or you can get those public officials or even the public in general to really rally behind a project when they can actually see a plan, not just, yeah, we're going to build this stuff out in the woods and it's going to be great and not really have anything to know. Maybe they're not mountain bikers and they don't really know what that means, you know, but do, do you do... Do you have a trail planning side or a person that does some trail planning for you for your trail building side of things as well?
0: Yeah, that's a huge part of it. We so if somebody calls us up, let's start with the biggest player, Loon, right? I met I met uh, Jay Scambio, he's the current president of Loon. I met him out in uh, at one of the bike park summits, bike park conferences. I think I met him in I want to say Colorado, Colorado, California. And a year later, he called me up and said, hey, remember you were telling me you're in the trail building business. Would you be interested in coming up to Loon and talking to, at the time, he wasn't the president. This guy, Rick Kelly, was the president. Would you be interested in coming up and talking to Rick and I about bike park? I said, sure. So I went up there. And the first step is just talking to people, right? Just hearing them out, listening to them, what they say they want. And then from there, it's walking the land. Right, and trying to figure out where is the best place to put a phase one. You know, I like to think of building anything in phases. Right, phase one being phase one of the plan might be the first year build, and then phase two is the second year. So looking at the whole mountain, you know, asking lots of questions first off, and then understanding what lifts are running or which ones we can run, and where if there's any current mountain bike trails and where the dirt might be, the best dirt. If there's any environmental concerns, all of that comes into play, and then it's just walking the land, walking, trying to discover cool areas, the, the perfect zones, and then we start flagging it out, uh, trail flagging, and then and then GPSing it, and that's when you know you do all this on-site work, and then we go back to the our office and and start writing it up. And some write-ups take more time. Like for Loon, I put together a plan that had it had all the trail layout on it with the GPS, trail alignments, and then uh, a write-up on why a bike part works and why it's good. And then specific to uh, the pro formas, you know, what what you could expect to do on on the first year as far as your P&L statements, your profits and your losses, what you could expect to do on the second year if you have this many riders and you have this much fixed cost and direct cost associated with your business units. And so all that goes into a good plan. And in the case of Loon, they're, so this is the big one again, they, they're they a U.S. force serviced, 90% of the properties on U.S. forest service land. So they had to cater to the U.S. force service guys. And so they had an engineering firm that they work with that actually does plans, like real professional stamped plans. So we worked with their firm to come up with those professionally built stamped plans. So, that, So that's how, you know, we don't have an in-house firm, but we would use the company that, like Horizons is the company we used at at Loon. Uh, but if we're doing smaller projects, we'll go in and we might just do a site survey and give them an, uh, like, look, this is what you have. And if you want us to do a full master plan, this is what it's going to cost. Um, we don't, maybe you don't need a full master plan for this particular project, but you do need to know where the trails are going to go and you need to lay it out and you need to flag it out. So, yeah, there's different levels depending on what you're doing. You know, we built an asphalt pump track this year at the local school. I'm on another nonprofit and we want to, uh, yeah, like I got nothing else to do, but I got another nonprofit that is about getting more kids out on bikes. It speaks, you know, to the kids. It's called the Keck Golden Ticket. And we won a big a big grant for that. So that got $117,000 grant. Half of that went towards the construction of an asphalt pump track and made a basic plan that we put together, our guys did an awesome job in putting the base of the, of the asphalt down and or the, the base down before the asphalt. And we caught, contracted an asphalt company to come in, put the asphalt on top and it turned out awesome. But we didn't have like specific, you know, engineered plans, just rough sketches of what we want to do. And just from the experience of our trail crew, they put together did a uh, really good job on that track. But yeah, planning is key. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes you need bigger plans if you have bigger projects. This project that we're doing here locally with the foothills connecting Highland first phase, the Whitewater Park. That's why we hired the SE group to help us, you know, work through some of the details and come up with a, a really good plan that we can present to the select board and, and other team, uh, other uh, community members to show them that, you know, we do have a strategy here and this is, this is how this is going to work. So yeah, planning is, is key to a good, a good product in the bike, bike trail.
2: And the asphalt pump tracks are something that's definitely coming on strong. We have one in our community that we built in 2018, the episode that just came out this week, which will be two episodes before this episode airs was with Saris, Saris is a bike rack manufacturer slash trainers. They do a bunch of bike related stuff and they just started a, a grant foundation called bike parks for kids. And that's their exact angle is is really that public space, you know, that type of bike park versus your type of bike park, where it's you know, where where an asphalt pump track it becomes as uniform as say a tennis court in the public arena. Absolutely.
0: Definitely. Look at all the look at all the uh the skate parks out there now, right? Yeah. And and these, yeah, these these asphalt pump tracks are coming along quick. I mean, everything that Velo Solutions is doing, they're out there just you go on their website and it's like, wow, how do how do they have time to build all these uh, asphalt pump tracks? But you know that's their core their core business. But after doing one, it's it's not that really not that hard. You know, it's it they come out pretty good if you if you know how to lay out the ground, you know, the foundation of it, and uh, hire asphalt team that comes in and they just they just coat coat the thing with the asphalt. I do want to say something real quick uh, about the that as, that pump track. A friend of mine. Uh, who was the principal. He was the principal of the the school. He, uh, World Cup downhill skier back in the 80s. He passed away suddenly about two years ago, had a uh, heart, heart attack. But I was working with him and, and some other folks on what we called the golden ticket. And the golden ticket was about getting kids on bikes, right? So it was, that was the, that was our ultimate goal is to get as many kids on bikes as possible. And he wanted to see pump track at his school, the Southwick School, which is an elementary school. Man, he never got to see it, but we were able, I I worked with his wife, Beth, and her family and other people to just make this amazing um, pump track come to fruition through the original efforts of Eric, Eric Keck is his name. And it's now something just awesome for the community. You know, these kids, the kids were just so psyched. we did the ribbon cutting ceremony. There were like 350 kids lined up outside the ribbon, and we had some of our our uh, coaches uh, speaking to the kids on how to safely ride a pump track and always wear a helmet and all that. But they did you know, they ripped around the track, and they were pulling manuals and transferring and doing cool stuff, and kids were going nuts, and then cut the ribbon and, and uh, they just ran over the track, and it was so cool to see. How that changes, like, think about how many lives that's going to change or it has changed. You know, just having something like that is really, uh, really cool. And and every community, like you said, you can imagine like every school someday having a pump track, asphalt pump track. You know, the asphalt pump tracks are nice because you can ride a, you can ride skateboard on it, you can ride a scooter on it, and they're low maintenance, right? You just weed whack around them. You don't have to have a, a trained person. Sculpting the dirt when the dirt melts away from the weather.
2: Yeah, that was I've said this before too. The scooter aspect was something I did not see coming. When we opened our pump track (laughs) in fall of 2018, I knew the pump track, I knew this asphalt pump track would be would actually cater to all ages, not just kids, because parents and kids are riding side by side now. And I knew people who rode scooters. I just didn't see them in those numbers until that asphalt pump track opened. And our asphalt pump track is adjacent to a skate park. It actually connects directly with the skate park. And, and it was one of those things where the city came to our non- local trail nonprofit and said, Hey, we have this skate park. We're going to rehab. There's a ball field next to it. It doesn't meet legal dimensions. Is there something you guys can do in that space? And me and, and one of the other, the guy that's actually the, the executive director of the trail org now, we're like, Oh yeah, we can do something with that space. And it wasn't even a year. We went from it being a concept to it being built and open to the public.
0: Love to hear those stories.
2: Do you have any closing comments before we wrap this thing up that you want to end
0: with? Yeah, I, I, I would just, I would just say that, you know, it's how important it is to grow this industry. It goes back to making it accessible to everybody. You know, when you make this sport accessible to everybody, the, the industry is just going to thrive. It's just going to keep taking off and everybody's going to benefit. There's so much out there, right? So much opportunity for everybody out there, you know, so many miles of trails could be built. And there's a lot of learning to be done, you know, us still, right? We're always learning, we're continuously learning, trying to innovate things. And it's only gonna continue to get better. And I know people, you know, some people are down on e-bikes, but whether you like them or not, those are coming. A good quality trail system, can accommodate e-bikes. I'm not talking about dirt bikes on trails. I mean, dirt bikes have a place, and maybe a dirt bike isn't necessarily. Maybe a bike mountain bike trail isn't the best place for a dirt bike because they can get pretty wrecked. Dirt bikes are par- powerful, but you know, level one e-bikes, pedal assist e-bikes, on a quality built trail that flows through your your woods, connects your communities. Man, it it's going to get so many people out that maybe don't really want to necessarily be in that pain cave or can't because their knees aren't as good as they used to or for whatever reason it's just going to get more people outside on bikes i mean i'm still i don't have an e-bike i'm still i still pedal you know but i see the value of e-bikes just to grow the industry and get more trails out there
2: yeah for certain and there's some bike parks getting built there on e-bike uplift now yeah you know, it's beautiful the, the podcast that'll come out just before this one with Nico Malali. that's what his, his bike parked on in North Carolina. Primarily, it, they don't have a lift and they, they do shuttle a little bit, but they don't, it's mainly for, I think his stuff. But they, you know, they're relying on pedal up, ride down. And it was funny because the local bike shop that actually supports the show, the owner, he was kind of upset initially when people were coming down in e-bikes. And he's like, look, how many people ride chairlifts to get to the top? Uh wow, Why are you getting down on an e-bike?
0: Like- exactly. Yeah. I mean, good for Nico. He's doing some great things. He's 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 awesome for the industry, for the sport. I mean, obviously, he's a really badass rider and good guy. And it's good to see that he's doing that. I mean, that's that's something I'd like to see here. We have a small little ski area that's a town-owned in Franklin. And they're, they're, I met with those guys the other day that are sort of spearheading that project same thing you know building some trails they want to they want a cat's paw trail which is one of our flagship trails intermediate jump trail They're like we want a cat's paw trail I'm like, yeah and we talked about e-bikes and the advantage of having e-bikes on a system like that because they don't have a chair lift you'd have to pedal to the top it's small so like, it's like less than 300 vertical I think it's 250 or something but still cool like if you had an e-bike you could just rip up to the top and rip down and yeah, and it, and as the technology gets better, the bikes get lighter and more balanced. You know, it's just it's going to be harder and harder not to have an e-bike.
2: I haven't ridden an e-bike either yet, mainly out of fear that if I do, it's going to be the next thing I need to purchase. And <laughs> I like what I have. I'm yeah, I'm with you. So yeah,
0: if you can even get your hand on one right now, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. That's the the uh, the industry definitely has its its issues with the chain supply right now with certain things and. We're seeing it, and hopefully that lightens up. I have bikes on order right now, purely just to be in line.
0: yeah, yeah, we do too.
2: Well, Mark, I really appreciate all the time you've taken here and kind of given some insight into how you've built the premier bike park in the United States, I would say, even though it's up in the the far right hand corner of our country up in the northeast, it's definitely definitely paved away for what other people have been able to realize what can happen, and we see more of these things coming online, and people. You know, but with that, people travel and they need to see different flavors. And so hopefully if you get up into the Northeast, hit up Highland Bike Park because it's everything I've seen on it is is incredible. You guys were on the forefront of many
0: things with your bike park. Well, thank you, Josh, for having me. And, And one final thing is this bike park would not exist without the amazing team that I have building it. So it's not just me. I've got awesome men and women that are dedicating their life, their passion to this project, and it exists because of them. So, yeah, thanks for allowing me to share a little bit of my story and, you know, look forward to many more miles of trails being built out there.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. For our next episode, we will feature Spider Mountain Bike Park, located in Burnett, Texas home the only chairlift in Texas. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trails Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trailfect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.